Welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. My name is Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. My guest today is Tom Griffiths, and I've re- I've wanted to talk to uh, Tom for a long time. Actually, he's um, definitely someone whose work I've admired for pretty much my entire career as a cognitive scientist. His most uh, or his sorry, his title is Professor of Psychology and Computer Science, and that's at Princeton, formerly of um, Berkeley, I believe. And uh, yeah, so he he directs the Computational Cognitive Science Lab, and he does all sorts of cool research, basically formal creating formal models of human behavior and human cognition. We talk about it at length, but. Um, yeah, this he's he's a core figure in this, um, you know, specifically the Bayesian approach to cognition using Bayes' rule as a kind of baseline to understand what humans are doing when they reason uh, about their worlds, and more generally just using computational models and and, and algorithms of, of various stripes to to understand and describe cognition and you know the otherwise private mental lives of, of humans. He also wrote a book with um, an author who I've had on the show a couple times, Brian Christian, that's called Algorithms to Live By. Um, and they have a new show uh, coming out. It's called Algorithms at Work. It is actually out now. And that's, again, uh, Brian Christian and Tom Griffiths on that. And it is available via Audible. So if you've got your Audible subscription like I do, definitely uh, put that in there. Right now, they're looking at a 4.9 rating on there. So I have actually yet to get around to it. Um, it's it's next up on my uh, reading list, so I'll definitely mention it when 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 I get to that on uh, my my Audible audiobooks. But yeah, no, super fun to, to talk to Tom, and I've been following his research for a long time. So, you know, we talk about everything from his early experiences in Australia, in particular Perth, to him getting interested in computational cognitive science, his meeting Josh Tenenbaum, who is this sort of epicentral figure in the field. And, you know, Tom's one of his closest collaborators. and He's also the person that largely inspired my entrance into to cognitive science, that sort of stuff. But yeah, no, so it was just fun to touch on all of this and talk about a few of, you know, the way Tom thinks about his own work and, and his own experiences and that sort of stuff. And uh, yeah, no, it's been great. And I'm looking forward to sharing this. If you like this episode, definitely another one that I'd recommend checking out is my episode with Sam Gershman. Again, you know, a big figure in this field. And uh, I worked with Sam and, you know, de- de- definitely um, a similar stripe of computational cognitive scientists. And if you want to support the show, if you want to follow along with my, with my other work, then please consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter. You can find that at codycommerce.substack.com. Like I said, best way to support the show and to keep up with you know, everything that I've got going on this show and my writing and, and, and everything else. So... Thank you for listening, and without any further ado, here is Tom Griffiths. I guess the first thing I want to start off with is, how would you describe the 
intellectual culture of your your family growing up or your childhood or the sort of you know social surroundings in which you came up well so i'm the child of a uh a, a freudian psychoanalytic social worker and uh an electrical engineer <laughs> so, hmm. i guess that actually seems, that makes total sense in a certain <laughs> yeah it seems in- inevitable in some ways that i'd end up doing what i do um the only thing that uh, would be more appropriate is if you were actually the offspring of tom space but i'm not sure that that's, <laughs> no, that's right yeah um so the uh i mean the the longer story is um my my mother's side of the family is is uh an academic family. So, um, my grandfather on that side was, uh, a student of, and then a colleague of CS Lewis and J.R. Tolkien at, at Oxford. Um, so he, he did Chaucerian English, um, and then went on to become founding faculty at, at Keele university. Uh, and so, uh, that side of the family has various people who have, you know, done higher degrees and so on. And then my dad's side, uh, is, is more of a, uh, I think, you know, traditional kind of, he grew up in a small town in, in England called Melton Mowbray, uh, was sort of like hunting and cheeses were the local specialties. <laughs> so, um, uh, and so, you know, I think there, those different perspectives came together in my family. Um, but, uh, for both of my parents, I think having, you know, I think for my mother, uh, having that kind of psychoanalytic perspective. And then my dad having trained as an electrical engineer, he went to Manchester university to work on the big mainframe computers that they had there. And then he went on into industry to, basically work with computers and he became a systems analyst and a management consultant. And then over the course of his career has become actually more and more interested in people (laughs) and the sort of systems that are made up of people. Uh, And he now does most of his work kind of consulting with people about, you know, finding fulfillment at work and things like that. So definitely a mix of those, those two different kinds of perspectives. Okay, interesting. Yeah, it's, it's it's fascinating that those two kinds of, of poles, the the you know sympathy with the the humanistic side of things and a little bit more technical and sort of the intersection of them seems there. Uh, uh, yeah, that's that's very very fascinating. What's um, what is the first time you can remember getting really excited about an idea? It could be some sort of experience that really made you think, or a book you stumbled upon, or even a, you know, a course you took or that sort of thing. But what, what, what was, what was it that really started igniting you in excitement about, about some sort of thought or idea? I mean, I think, uh, there've been various points at which that's happened for me and they're normally sort of technical ideas. So I got into computer programming pretty young. Uh, so because of his job, actually my, my parents, uh, originally met in the UK, which is where they were from, and then moved to Australia. But there was this period of two years where my dad was kind of commuting back and forth to Australia. And so he would come for, you know, a month and then he'd go back and then he'd go for a month and come back. Um, And so during that period, my parents wrote uh, email to one another. They were kind of like early adopters of email. And so they had these 
you know, original sort of proto laptop computers uh, that were the devices that they used for doing this. And so I'd see my parents, you know, pecking away at these things and sending messages to one another. Um, and so I ended up learning to program on those machines uh, in, in basic. And so that was kind of like an early obsession. Mostly I wrote computer games where, you know, my brother would type in his name and then it would say something rude to him you know? <laughs> so, or blood would trickle down the screen or, you know, yeah. sort of very basic kind of graphics. Um, but that was definitely a thing where like the idea that you could give instructions to the machine and get it to do that uh, was just kind of a striking idea. Um, and I, I, I remember in primary school, I was a computer in a play. So it was, you know, kind of like a human playing a computer again has kind of like <laughs> echoes in later life. Um, uh, and I think, you know, the, so, so computer science was there for me, like from a, a pretty early point. Um, my other kind of point of contact with it was, uh, um, so I had what was, probably chronic fatigue syndrome. It wasn't really diagnosed at the time, but I spent like, I missed a couple of years of high school. Uh, and during that period, one of the things I did was get into um, uh, what are called multi-user dungeons, which is kind of like the precursor to like games now, like World of Warcraft and things like that. So it was like text-based adventure games. And so that was one of the things that I could do. And I did that, and then I sort of realized at some point, oh, there's just code underlying this. <laughs> and it has this, when you get to level 20 in the game, you become a wizard and suddenly you can see the code, right? <laughs> and so that was a revelation where now all of these things that I'd interacted with, I then discovered, you know, there's code behind those things. And I, I learned like object-oriented programming in the context of then being able to create objects that operate in, in this environment. Um, and so uh so those those were kind of like yeah early early moments where you know suddenly i feel like some of the surface of the world got peeled away um and and you know i realized that there's other stuff there yeah so there is this sort of interface with computers language and human behavior that was was sort of tantalizingly underlying all of all all of that sort of stuff um and then how did you, so you did your undergrad at University of Western Australia. Um, how did you decide on psychology as opposed to something, you know, more technical or, or, or whatever? Yeah, so it, in some ways it came out of having had that experience of kind of being really sick for a couple of years. So, you know, up to that point in school, I'd been very into mathematics and computer science kinds of topics. Um, and I think going through that experience made me realize that there are all sorts of things that we just don't understand. Uh, and I wanted to study things that, you know, are sort of genuinely mysterious. Um, I kind of felt like, you know, taking classes in physics and chemistry, the way that science was taught was kind of like in this situation, you use this formula in this situation, you use this formula. And it kind of felt like, I don't think this is true with, you know, more knowledge of these things now, but it kind of felt like if you, took more classes in those things, you'd be learning more formulas. You wouldn't kind of like be getting to the edges of knowledge for, for a much longer time. And so, um, so in Australia, when you get to your final year of school, you have to decide what you want to do at university. And so I was, you know, I'd, I'd come back from being sick 
So I was like, I came back for that final year of school. I was still like, I think at the point where we had to make the decisions, I was like 15 or 16 years old. It wasn't, you know, it was kind of, you know, you, you have to sort of make these elections that are about what you're going to do for the rest of your life. In Australia, there's these, um, like degrees, like a law degree or a, a medicine degree or, or uh, undergraduate degrees. So really you're kind of like deciding, okay, what, what track am I going to be on? And I was like, I really don't feel like that's a question that I can answer now. I want to do the thing that's going to give me the most options and kind of give me the, the, the chance to study these generally mysterious things. And so I opted for a bachelor of arts, which is kind of in some ways derided in the Australian system as being, you know, the degree that you need the lowest score to get into. <laughs> um, and there's all sorts of jokes about, okay, you're preparing yourself for a career at McDonald's or whatever it is. Um, but uh, for me, that was, that was the thing that then gave me the flexibility to be able to take, you know, a wider range of courses in a way that's maybe more like the, the US kind of system. And so the courses I took were like philosophy, psychology, anthropology, um, ancient history, they were really kind of like directed at, yeah, at mysteries. Um, and that uh, it, it took a, a, a while within that to kind of realize what I was interested in. But a couple of years into that, I was reading one of the books from one of my philosophy classes and I had this chapter at the back, which was about neural networks. And I was like, oh my goodness, you can use mathematics and computer science to study, you know, how it is that human minds work. And then that sort of set the, the track for the rest of the time I spent at university and then, and then on to graduate school. Yeah, absolutely. Was, um, let's see. Uh, so one of the, one of the things that I'm kind of interested, uh, in, in there is, um, Oh yeah, no, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Uh, what I was going to say was that, yeah, you know, I've always been skeptical of the European and English and by extension Australian, you know, kind of, uh, they uh, they prioritize exploitation without al allowing a, a period of exploration in the same way that the American system is like, oh yeah, go to college. In a couple of years, we'll ask you what you want to study and then, you know, you can... Think about it some more after you graduate. If you're really interested, then you get a master's degree, right? <laughs> you know, you go to professional school or whatever. Um, but yeah, I've always been fascinated about how people who come on to, you know, creativity throughout their career often have, they need that delayed, that, that longer period of, of exploration in order to find what it is that's interesting, that speaks to them, that's something they can speak to. And, and all that sort of stuff. And I've always been fascinated by how that plays out. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I think it's, it's really uh, comes from a kind of like professional training tradition, right? A sort of view of university education as preparing you for a career in perhaps a more explicit way than, than in the, the US system. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's also a difference in that in high school, you potentially get exposed to things you know in a in a different way than you do in the US so like um like I learned probability theory and linear algebra and statistics and regression in high school right you know and those are things that I think it would be unusual to get exposed to you know uh in the the US system so I think 
I think part of it is sort of saying, okay, well, you kind of have this broader base already now. It's time to specialize maybe a little earlier. But I, I think for me, certainly having that flexibility was worthwhile. Um, if we think about my friends, a lot of them sort of did one of those professional degrees and then ended up working in a completely different area. So, you know, I think, you know, that I have friends who did law degrees who then become pastors or, you know, did, uh, you know, like engineering degrees and then became, you know, teachers. And so I think it's been a, it's been something where that exploration in some sense happens, but maybe it's, it's through a career change rather than, you know, the, the, the process that happens in, in college. Right. Yeah. You can't, you can't, you can't jump straight to the exploit. There's no way to get around the, the explore. Yeah. Um, are you from Perth originally? Uh, so I was born in the UK and oh, we okay. lived in London for eight years and then, uh, moved to Perth after this. So basically after my dad was commuting for that period, um, uh, we all moved to Australia, um, and moved there. It was, it was kind of like done as a, okay, for two years, we're going to live in Australia. And then once my parents were there for two years, they decided they could never go back. So oh, yeah. <laughs> I, as far as I, I don't know of any English people who have not had that experience. They're like, you know what? I'm going to, I can go to Australia temporarily. It'll be great. We'll I mean, like, this is so much better than being in England. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, like where I grew up, um, it's like a 15 minute walk to the beach or like 10 yeah. minutes. If you go the way where there are snakes, you know, it's like a, <laughs> it's like a, it's a, it's a very idyllic kind of place to, grow up and, and live. Um, although I think as a, as a kid, it also felt kind of like quiet and, uh, sort of, you know, it, like Perth is, is a very isolated city. Um, it's actually, uh, um, you know, it's part of why it's one of the last places on earth that doesn't have COVID. Yeah. <laughs> so my, my parents have been leading normal lives for the last two years and they're like, what's this stuff that's going on that we keep seeing in the news? Um, yeah. So what, and, uh, I'm curious, what do you think of Perth conceptually? You know, like, cause I've always been fascinated by Perth at like for this very reason that it really is in a sense, the most remote place in, in the, like, you know, in, in certainly the Western world, the like Western conception of, of, of the world where it is on this continent that is far away from everything. And it is far away from everything else on that continent. And so it's like several degrees, like, you know, it feels like order of magnitude level, like far away from things. And always there's, there's a certain draw the city has to me because of that, you know, multi-layered isolation. There's a certain fascination for me there. I've always, I've always been drawn to Perth for that reason. Yeah. It, it plays this funny role in Australian culture where uh, Perth is the place where people move to when they're character is being eliminated from a soap opera so like when the actor is like moving on to something else their character moves to perth and you never see them again <laughs> um it, no i mean it, it, I, I think what's funny about it is you know like when i was there it's a, it was a town of about like one and a half million people but it still felt like a small town in the sense that you know for people of about my age, if I run into somebody who's from Perth, then we can very quickly figure out who we know in common. <laughs> mm, okay. Yeah. Um, and that's because, you know, there's a few bottlenecks in terms of, you know, like universities and so on, but, but it's also like a, a sort of very 
locally connected place. Um, and I think, you know, uh, people would always be upset that bands would come to Australia and they wouldn't bother to go to Perth or things like that. <laughs> but um, it has the perk that um, it, it would mean that on any weekend, there would be kind of exactly one really good thing to do. Right. And so you don't have a kind of like complicated choice problem because yeah. you would know, okay, these are the things that you can do you know, this weekend. Um, in some ways, moving to Princeton reminds me a little bit of that because it's got the same, you know, it's, it's genuinely a small town and it has some of the same, you know, it's like an hour to some big cities, but it's, it's not that close to big cities. And so it's kind of like a little capsule of that experience. And that's funny. Okay, I guess we can we can return to the the plot here. Um, when did you first meet Josh Tenenbaum? So I met Josh. So I, I having finished my degree in uh, um, Western Australia, I then worked as a research assistant for a little bit. To there's a gap between when the Australian academic year ends because it runs summer to summer in Australia and then, you know, what happens in the US. And so I was working as a research assistant in that period. I applied to a bunch of grad schools. Um, I applied to um, Oxford, Carnegie Mellon, Stanford. And then I didn't bother applying to MIT because I read their website, which was like, if you were an international student, it's extremely unlikely you will receive funding. And I was like, oh, I guess I shouldn't bother applying then. And then, you know, subsequently everyone told me, I don't know why that was on the website. That's certainly not true. So yeah. <laughs> it was one of these things where like, and I really had no knowledge of the process or what was going on in these places. So I had to do the GRE. It was this weird thing. I'd never done a standardized test like this before. It was like, that was a sort of novel novelty. Um, I sent off my applications I applied to Stanford because uh, Dave Rommelhart and Roger Shepard were there. And it turns out Dave Rommelhart and Roger Shepard were on the website. <laughs> but, you know, um, for various reasons, like uh, they were, you know, weren't really there. Um, they'd, they'd retired. Um, and so... Uh, so the, the was lesson where, here is, is don't trust the website whenever you're looking, you learned, you learned a very valuable lesson in academia, which is that whatever it says on the website has very little correspondence to the reality of, of what's going on on a particular campus. Yeah, I think that's true, unfortunately. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like I, I sort of went into that process relatively blind. I mean, the other thing that was funny was, so I'd actually gone through the Rhodes Scholarship application process and I was like, um, like the runner up in Western Australia and I got referred into the national thing. And I went through these, I went to, you know, uh, Canberra, Australia's capital. And I met with the governor general and I went through this whole process uh, with that and, you know, it didn't work out in the end, but because of that, I sort of had the idea that what you had to write in your essay with, you know, your like your research statement was, you know, I'm this well-rounded person and so on, you know, the sort of attributes that people look for in your, uh, uh, and, I, and I wrote a scholarship essay. And so I wrote this research statement. It was probably like, you know, two thirds vague stuff that I'm interested in. And one third, how I was excited about the fencing facilities at Stanford. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so this was, uh, you know, probably stood out in the, the stack of, uh, of research statements. So anyway, so I was lucky that um, Josh was just starting 
he had he had accepted the job, but he hadn't started at Stanford yet. And he went through folders that year and sort of pulled my folder out of the stack, um, you know, and saw something in it. Yeah. Wait. Uh, what? What? What did he see? What was the? Was there? What? Yeah. That that was uh, you, either I like think, the luckiest choice of all time, where like you know you guys went on to have this fabulous collaboration throughout your careers, or he actually saw what 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 was that? Um, I you have to ask him because I don't know what was in my folder. Um, the the things that I I mean my GRE scores were fine, right? So that was kind of like one objective piece of evidence he could have to compare against local applicants. Um, uh, um, but I mean, so, uh, I think I had also taken, I, a, what in retrospect is a slightly unfortunate approach to my university education, which was that, um, you know, being in that, uh, narrow, you know, being in that relatively narrow and constrained system where, so in fact, you know, I said, I started out with philosophy, psychology, anthropology, and, and ancient history. Basically every year you drop one of those and you become more and more specialized. So by the time I got to the fourth year, I was just taking psychology. Um, and so I think there's a thing that I could have done, you know, feeling a little under challenged by that. I could have been like, I'm going to get super involved in, and, I, and I've been doing research for like two years, basically, since I had had that experience of saying, discovering you can do neural networks. I went and cornered the person on campus, Mike Kalish, who was working on that. I was like, I want to do this. It was like 9 a.m. before his lecture, the first day of classes, you know, uh, and he was like, okay, okay, yeah, come, you know, <laughs> come and talk to me after class. And he sort of ended up working in his lab. And I had a bunch of like, you know, computer programming, et cetera, experience from, so, you know, doing these multi-user dungeons, right? So I actually knew how to administer Unix systems. <laughs> and so, you know, I was a pretty useful undergraduate in that context where, um, you know, I was able to do things and, and uh, ultimately contributed to research projects and so on. But um, And this was, just to clarify, early 2000s, like circa, what was it, 2002 or something like that was when you started at Stanford. And so this was fairly uncommon uh, at the time for... Well, so I, I was in college from 95 to 98. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. 2002 then, is when you would have graduated yeah. from, from Stanford. Yeah. So it was, it was like when the Linux systems were Got coming it. out and I like set up a bunch of Linux systems and did these things. But um, it was a, before it was sort of widespread that, the you know, undergraduate experience in computer scientific, you know, sort of yeah, fields. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and, and particularly again, in that Australian system where you get tracked, right. Where it would be very unlikely that a psychology mm. undergrad would have that experience because they're mostly coming in through the arts path and they're not going to be taking computer science classes. Um, and so, uh, and then the other thing was that I, um, decided, you know, that the thing I was going to do feeling a little under, under challenge was, yeah, you know, rather than maybe diving into research things deeper, which might've been better, was just like optimized with respect to the metrics that I was provided. <laughs> and so I would, you know, kind of like, so classes that I took had, you know, you do things through the semester, but it's like the English system where you write, ex you write exams at the end of the semester, like you write lots of papers. And so I would just memorize, uh, all of the references 
from class and then like write papers that were fully referenced you know in the exams with like citations and so on. um I and you know like, like uh a superpower of pathology that's probably right. a so, little bit of both so so but it means that you know um i stood out i guess among mm. the you know undergraduate population i won i won like a university prize at university of western australia so it's, you know i was coming with some kind of intellectual pedigree but from a very unfamiliar place um and so um and i think i think stanford didn't do interviews i think they just admitted me um and so i just got a call from barbara tversky at like you know 7 a.m perth time or something being like hey congratulations come to stanford <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a very weird thing. Yeah. That, and so, yeah, so, weird. so I flew out. It's the first time I'd been to America, flew into San Francisco. Um, uh, there was an Australian graduate student, Katerina Velanova, who kind of like looked after me for a week <laughs> while I was like, you know, kind of, um, just dealing with jet lag and culture shock. And, um, uh, and I met Josh in that context where he was visiting for a conference or something and, um, and, and sort of just had the chance to get excited about um, all sorts of ideas together. Here's what I want to know. Back in this, in this time, was Josh Tenenbaum Josh Tenenbaum? You know what I mean? Like now he's a semi-mythical figure in cognitive science, the like, you know, the father of so much of what is computational cognitive science and has this alacrity, this ability to make ideas exciting and all, all this sort of stuff. And, uh, did he, did he have that from day one when you, when you met him, was he like that? Yeah. So when I met him, um, he just finished his PhD at MIT, right? And so he'd written this, you know, dissertation that was kind of a little quirky and, and not really not really kind of like directly advised by anybody, right? So he, um, like Roger Shepard was in some ways his biggest intellectual influence. Um, uh, and um, so he was sort of doing his own thing. Uh, that work was framed in a way where it was engaging with deep, important, exciting intellectual issues, right? And so, um, so that was exciting. And then, um, and the other work that he was doing at the time was um, on isomap, this uh, method for um, uh, con you know constructing manifolds. It's based on methods from multidimensional scaling. That was exciting because I'd done a bunch of work with multidimensional scaling. So, by the way, um, I want to just interject on that. This is one of my like I find this endlessly funny. Is that when you look at Josh Tenenbaum's Google Scholar page, like the most cited work by him by an order of magnitude is isomap. And it's just hilarious because, you know, he's he's done so much foundational computational cognitive science uh, research. And yet the thing that is by far and away the most cited thing he's ever do is this semi unrelated, uh, in, in a sense, totally unrelated thing in, you know, machine learning uh, and dimensionality reduction. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think it's totally unrelated. <laughs> in that, I mean, it, it really is about like if you think about it in the Roger Shepard tradition, right? It's it's a way of taking the kind of 
Roger Shepard tool of multidimensional scaling and then extending it to this context, right? Of, okay, now you have information which is embedded in a space where there's a nonlinearity such that you can't trust long range distances, right? So, um, so I think about that as being cognitive science work. Um, I mean, I think the other well, thing well, is... Let me, let me, I, 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 I hedged my, my thing there. I started <laughs> off saying semi-unrelated and I think for the, for yeah. the reason that you mentioned, because I, I am very sympathetic to the idea of, you know, dimensionality reduction, how that plays a role in our, in our mental representations in, in so many different yeah. ways and everything. So I do think it is, but it's just, it's still a funny, it's still a funny thing to me, you know? I think there's also, if you develop methods that are used across a wide range of disciplines, then you get citations for that. Yeah. So yeah, like yeah. my most cited paper is like on algorithms for topic models. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it, that is a that similar a, kind of thing. I always, <laughs> I, I kind of find that, um, uh, funny as well it's not necessarily the thing that i most associate with you but again it's your you know the thing that that yeah has racked up the the highest number count anyway um yeah so i mean so yeah just sort of like answer your question no i mean i think um he was excited and about those topics and you know kind of thinking big in a characteristic way and made me excited about those topics. And so, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of those elements were there. Do you have a theory of Josh Hennenbaum? Like, do you have a theory, like what makes him like who he is or like what he does that's, you know, qualitatively different than, than other people? Is, is there anything that comes to mind on that front? Not particularly. <laughs> so, this is a um, topic of conversation of people who kind of float in my, you know, peer group, mm-hmm. you know, people who are, uh, several rungs below Josh and certain, you know, uh, things and everything is, you know, what's, what is the theory that, that accounts for this? One is that there's a kind of militaristic kind of organizational genius that he has, which is that he's able to install people who are sympathetic to his program of research at key, you know, institutions and strategic points throughout the the intellectual world. And he seems to be able to do that, to cultivate that, to employ those strategies in a way that no one else really even resembles. So there's lots of things like that that I find very fascinating uh, about about the way he approaches academia and, you know, bringing his ideas and and frameworks to the world. Hmm. (laughs) Neither here nor there. Anyway, um... Uh, yeah. So did you guys understand, was it always clear what the sort of core Bayesian rationality based principles were to you? Or or was that clear from the beginning? You just worked from there logically, or was there a time when that became clear for you? So, uh, I mean, the other thing I'd been doing as an undergraduate was basically like learning statistics from the ground up. So, um, I think, the common experience of a psychology undergraduate is you learn statistics as this kind of cookbook, right? You're like, in this situation, you do this test. In this situation, you do this test. And that was not at all satisfying. So whenever I took those classes, I would be like, why is that the thing that you do? And kind of like derive those things and so on. And then actually, you know, in the process, getting an education in mathematical statistics. So I, I kind of had come from that background with this sort of like, you know, strong commitment to you know, like statistics as a, as a worldview, uh, and had encountered Bayesian statistics in that context. Um, and then, you know, the exciting new idea was that we can then 
take this and use this as a way of understanding human cognition in terms of thinking about human minds as performing statistical inference. So, so that was, that was the new thing for me. And then, you know, I think given that piece, which came from Josh, you know, via uh, Roger Shepard and, you know, the, the sort of, you know, r- rational tradition in cognitive science uh, that then uh was the genesis for a lot of the work that we did together. Thinking back on this period, is there anything that comes to mind when you think of your most instructive failures? Something that you expected to work out, um, but maybe didn't in the way that you thought it would, that sort of shaped your, you know, the way you approached your 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 work? I I think honestly, the thing that stood out to me about doing that sort of early work in Bayesian modeling was that it was alarmingly successful. So I'd, I'd previously done sort of more traditional kinds of cognitive modeling where you'd say, okay, here are the kinds of mechanisms that we think might be a work, right? We have similarity functions, we have choice functions, they have these parameters in them, and we're going to build a categorization model out of these things. And then we're going to get some data and we're going to you know, like a lot of what I'd done as an undergraduate was like, you know, using optimization packages to optimize the parameters of the models to get them to line up with whatever we see in the data. And when we made Bayesian models, you kind of didn't need to do that. Like, like a lot more of it would come from here's the problem being solved. uh, And now here's the predictions that this generates. And those predictions already look, you know, pretty close to what we see in the human data and maybe we need to go back and tweak this a little bit and sort of think about the assumptions that we're making differently but there was a way in which things just kind of like fell out of models that having done that other kind of work before that was new and exciting and i still think is one of the things that's one of the the strengths of that kind of approach is that you know the 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 models are sort of by definition doing something reasonable um, even, even if you haven't got the assumptions quite right. Yeah. Another aside before we go down that, that path, when did you meet Tanya? Uh, so we met at Stanford. So, um, I was a graduate student and she was an undergraduate, although for various reasons having to do with my wacky educational history and the way that you know, Australian universities versus U.S. universities work, where we're pretty much. I think she's she's about eighteen months younger than me, so we're pretty much the the, the same age. Um, and so, it's a it's a little funny because uh, I met her in like October nineteen ninety nine, and she met me like in January two thousand. So like there was an asymmetry in our, <laughs> like I introduced myself to her in a logic class and she doesn't remember that. <laughs> I see. Oh, uh, and then, and then we, um, uh, we, we were basically taking a bunch of the, the same classes because, you know, what I'd missed out on in my psychology education uh, you know, and I had to sort of do for myself was uh, sort of like formal training in mathematics, computer science. And so when I was trying to figure out where to go to, to graduate school, 
one of the draws uh, at Stanford was that I could be doing a, a master's degree in statistics in parallel with the, uh, the psychology PhD. And so I basically spent all my time taking classes in math and statistics um, while I was at Stanford um, and sort of building the technical foundation that then I'd use in the rest of my research. So I want to kind of draw out how your approach to computational cognitive science has changed from and, and developed, I guess, since, you know, sort of this time. Like you said, there was kind of this initial excitement around Bayesian models that there was some core here, that we were really getting to something fundamental. And I think that's been borne out in in many ways. And, you know, uh, obviously it has, like any theory, it has its detractors and things, but it's definitely led to this, you know, vast field of, of research where you sort of take this as a core starting point. And so I kind of want to draw a line between the basic assumptions of that work and uh, a paper, a, sh a, a super short paper of yours that you wrote, I think it was published in 2015, um, called A Manifesto for a New Computational Cognitive Evolution. And I, I really love that paper. I, I read it when, it when it came out and I revisited it for, for this conversation. But can you kind of describe the thrust of, of that idea and maybe how that sort of came to, you know, your, how you came to start thinking about those things with the sort of foundation of, of, of Bayesian cognition? Yeah, so, I mean, so the basic argument in that paper is that um, if you look at the way that, uh, well, I, th I think there, there are two parts of the argument. So one is, if you look at the way that we're, we're kind of thinking about data in psychology, it's really focused on a very narrow slice of the kinds of data that we could be using, right? So um, we're very focused on experimental data, typically from the kinds of studies that we're used to running in labs. Um, and part of what got me thinking about alternatives to that was actually, so um, we have... Tanya and I have two, uh, two girls. Uh, the first of them was born in 2010. Uh, and, uh, as, you know, we, we, we kind of spent the first, we, we had, we had no, we said we, we did this thing where we had like no external childcare for the first eight months of our daughter's life. Um, and so, you know, we, we kind of like, tag teamed um, uh, looking after her. And so we had this app that we used to facilitate this where you basically would log when she ate and when she, you, know, you changed the diaper and uh, when she started sleeping, when she ended sleeping. It was basically an extremely useful thing to do from the perspective of like baby debugging, right? Because the baby's crying. They only have sort of like one error signal. You have to then figure out, okay, what's the thing that's causing this error signal to occur? And you can look at the the log and you can be like, oh, okay, it's been this long since this thing happened. It's probably that, right? And sort of like, you know what the intervention is that's required. Um, but then on this app, you can actually go and look and, you know, it actually had a thing where it displayed the sleep data and you could actually see, you know, these are the periods that she slept for. And, you know, we sort of had that going back for, in the end, we had this for like, you know, two years of her life or something like that. And I realized that the people who made that app had more data on the experience of infants than you know the entire history of developmental psychology. And I was like, 
okay, <laughs> this, this is a kind of thing where, you know, I think we're, we're starting to miss out as, uh, as, as psychologists. And so, so one part of the argument was just, look, you know, I, I think another way of framing it is in terms of different kinds of sciences, right? So, you know, um, yes, you know, controlled interventional data is a valuable kind of data. Um, but you can, you know, say if you look at like physicists, some physicists are doing, you know, lab experiments or, you know, making atoms, uh, you know, uh, collide with one another. Other physicists are uh, doing astronomy where they're taking sort of large scale, noisy observational data, and they're nonetheless able to kind of draw conclusions from those kinds of data. And one of the things that makes it possible to operate at those two different scales and with those different kinds of data is that you have math as a common theme that connects between them, right? And so that was part of the argument. So the step one is, okay, we need to be doing kind of a, a, a better job of thinking about the kinds of data we use as psychologists. And we have the kind of mathematical tools that we'd, we'd need in order to be able to do that. And then the other argument was, in fact, there are people who are looking at large scale behavioral data. Um, they're largely computer scientists. And from the psychologist's perspective, what they're doing is behaviorism, right? Like, if you're trying to figure out how to get people to click on ads and you're doing this using machine learning models, you're essentially sort of learning some mapping from features to behavior, right? That's pretty direct mapping. And nowhere in that process are you positing anything like an internal state. And so the, the opportunity that that suggests is one where we as cognitive scientists who are used to thinking about you know, internal states and, and making cognitive models uh, can potentially bring something to those data as well where we can just not only get more insight into how human minds work, but potentially, you know, think about using those data in richer and, and more informative ways. Yeah, I love all that. Did you guys ever contact the people who made that app? I did, yeah. Um, they, at the time, were not interested. They subsequently have started working with some developmental psychologists. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so one of the major arguments, just to summarize, you know, sort of what you said is that these large-scale analyses of behavioral data, even when they are done, they're done without recourse to the underlying cognitive processes producing that behavior. And if you had a better model of the internal cognitive, you know, sort of processes, whether that's, you know, uh, preferences or just beliefs or, or, or whatever it is, then, you know, we'd be able to do better analyses. We'd be able to make better recommendations from the companies or the products perspective. But from the cognitive science perspective, we would have this whole new way of going in to uh, answer those questions in these large scale data sets. So has that, so that, so you wrote that manifesto, you know, a little, a little over half a decade ago now. What sort of progress have we made on that topic? How has that changed and progressed since then i so i think it's i think it's it's been starting to happen it's funny because yeah i was thinking about the fact it was five years ago just you know in my lab just in the last year i think we've done a bunch of things that i think are really um aligned with what what the content of that manifesto um so it wasn't just an argument for using observational data sets it was also that when we're doing things like crowdsourced experiments, you know, using Mechanical Turk or Prolific or whatever it is, we're underutilizing those platforms, right? So um, the way that a, uh, a psychologist standardly uses those platforms is they take the thing that they ran in the lab, now they run it online, maybe they get a few more subjects, maybe, you know, definitely happens more quickly, 
but it's exactly the same experiment they would have run in the lab. And, you know, if you think about this as now we have a machine where if you put in money, you get back data, you can ask the question of like, how should we optimally be using that machine to answer our questions? And the answer to that is not take the same studies that you ran in the lab. It's think about, you know, just asking more ambitious questions or asking the questions you have in a more sort of expansive, more comprehensive way, right? And so um, just in the last year, you know, efforts that <laughs> in, in, actually, you know, started pretty close to the point where that, that paper came out, but sort of published in the last year, we have, um, uh, we published one paper, this is um, with uh, Rachel Jansen and Anna Rafferty, where we, uh, if, you, if you look at the entire history of studies on the Dunning-Kruger effect, they're, they're done with this analysis where you just sort of plot four points. And that doesn't actually tell you a lot about what the relationship is between people's beliefs about their ability to answer questions and their, uh, their actual you know, sort of accuracy in answering those questions, which is the sort of fundamental thing. It doesn't give you the information that you need to, 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 to determine whether people are actually sort of miscalibrated in the way that the Dunning-Kruger hypothesis suggests. And so we used a large data sets to plot the entire length of that function. And when you do that, you discover that it's a nonlinear function. So it's something where, you know, it's a, it has this sort of flat bit at the end, which is exactly what you, you need in order to you know, support that hypothesis of miscalibration. And so that's one thing we can do with lots of data is plot entire functions rather than asking either binary questions or sort of questions about a couple of points. Um, another thing we, paper we had published this is with um, Thomas Langlois and Nari Jacobi, um, we took a classic kind of task, which is this, um, uh, you know, you see a dot on a shape and then you, you know, you, uh, the, you then are asked to reconstruct the location of the dot. And so this is something people have studied for a while. They sort of suggest, well, you know, people have these sort of systematic biases in reconstruction. Maybe they suggest something about how we're representing these things. And we, ran a massive study where we not just collected this information for lots and lots of images, but also did a, an iterated version of this where one person's dot, you know, selection became the dot stimulus for the next person. Uh, and by doing that, we're able to get this, you know, amazingly clear picture of what the locations are that people's memories are drawn to that allows us to then say very precise things about what the factors are that influence uh, those, those kind of spatial memories. Um, and then we have a paper, um, so Josh Peterson's the, the first author in this paper that came out in, in science last year, where we, uh, we said, okay, uh, if you look at the, the history of research on decision-making uh, for, for risky choice, where you're making a, a choice between say a, a safe option and something where there's some chance of one payoff and some chance of another payoff, um, the, the entire history of theory development in that area of psychology has been based on a relatively small set of scenarios that people have analyzed. And so what we did was go out and collect people's decisions for like 10,000 different choice scenarios. Mm. Uh, and from that, what you discover is, you know, you can, you can use machine learning methods to then build better models. Uh, but you, you have, what we sort of discovered through doing those analyses was that, you know, the, the attributes of psychological theories, things like, loss aversion or overweighting small probabilities are definitely true. They're definitely things that people do, but the extent to which they're done differs across the space 
of choice problems. So if you just chosen choice problems selectively and just looked at a subset of them, you could come away thinking that that's a global phenomenon in people's choices. But in fact, it's a sort of local phenomenon that's relevant to a subset of the choices that people make. And so by mapping the entire space, right, by collecting all of the stimuli, we just get this much richer, more complex, more nuanced picture of how it is that people make decisions. Yeah, all that's all that's very interesting. There's another paper that I started on right before our conversation here, which is recommendation is generalization using big data to evaluate cognitive models, um, which is published yeah. last year. That sounds that sounded really interesting. Yeah, so and uh, David Borgen's the first author in that paper, and and uh, um, so and he he's actually he went on to work at Spotify. <laughs> so. Um, so the, that paper um, is really taking sort of classic psychological model, right? Roger Shepard uh, style generalization models and then applying them in the context of problems like playlist generation uh, and showing that using psychological models in those settings actually produces performance that's you know, competitive with and in some cases can exceed sort of standard sorts of you know, computer science-y industry recommendation models. That's really fun. I want to... Uh... Yeah, I guess so that those are some good examples of how you've you've uh, begun to, you know, sort of explore this vein. Are there anything that come to mind sort of like a longer term? Oh, this would be my dream is if we could do some sort of thing like this a little bit more pie in the sky, a little bit like, oh, well, this is not possible at the moment. This is a very long term thing. Is there anything that comes to mind on this front like that that you'd like to see in the sort of longer term future? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, uh, you know, there's there's still a lot of data that we're not thinking about from a from a psychological perspective, um, and I think, you know, there are some challenges involved in that. I think, um, you know, thinking about how do we do these kinds of things ethically, right? Like sort of like what are the sources of data that we work with and, and you know, sort of figuring out good ways of doing that. Um, thinking about collecting the kinds of data that are most informative about human cognition. Um, if you kind of look at the sorts of data sets that are available, they all have traces of human cognition in it, but you're often missing the kind of variables that are the things that we think about in the context of a psychology experiment or something like that. And so it can be quite hard to, to think about how to get psychological theories, which are sort of developed with, you know, this assumption that you've got all of the information to engage with, you know, the things that are going on in those data sets. Um, uh, but I mean, I think the, the, the bigger vision here is that, yeah, we can imagine kind of making a laboratory for psychological data that's analogous to, you know, an observatory for astronomy, right? Where we, we think about, using these these different data sets in novel ways as a as a tool for getting these kinds of insights and so you know those are things that um i'd certainly think about a lot uh i think the other thing honestly is thinking about changing the approach that we take to theories in psychology so i just i told you about you know a few of these different results that we had recently um the main thing that has come away from basically every time we've started doing one of these you know, analyses is that we go into it saying, okay, here's an area where we have a couple of psychological theories 
which one of these is true? Let's just collect a big data set and we'll definitively answer the question as to like which of these things is the right thing. And what happens is we collect the data set and what we discover is neither of those is the right thing. In fact, it's much more complicated. And you know, we've just been underestimating the complexity of the problem. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, that shouldn't be a surprise, right? Uh, because it's essentially exactly what you'd expect under the, the bias variance trade-off, right? So bias variance trade-off says there are kind of like two ways to be wrong. You can be wrong because you make a model which is too simple. You can be wrong because you make a model that's too complex. If it's too simple, it doesn't fit the data very well. That, that doesn't fit the data that you have very well. If it's too complex, if it's the data that you have, but it overfits it, and so you generalize poorly, right? Um, and the 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 risks that are involved of you know sort of making something that's too simple and making something too complex, they change as a function of the amount of data that you have. So if you've got a small amount of data, you want to stay simple, right? You want to like have a super simple theory because that's reducing the risk that you sort of overgeneralize and and you know, overfit and over and, and generalize poorly. Uh, if you've got lots of data, then you can tolerate a more complex theory. And in fact, that more complex theory is going to do a better job because it's going to explain the data that you have. It'll also, you know, the sort of level of increased performance you get from that complexity is also going to generalize because you had enough data to estimate that complexity. And so I think psychology, by being focused on small amounts of data, has lived in the, uh, the kind of high bias regime for a long time. And that's shaped our expectations about what a psychological theory is, right? So we go into a psychology experiment with the expectation we're going to come out of it with a simple theory that's going to be this or that. It's going to be this factor that affects people um, or, you know, this very simple, elegant mathematical model. And uh, when you collect more data, you discover that, in fact, there's systematic variation in the data that, you know, you can account for, but it requires something which is far more complex and, and sort of, you know, maybe in some ways harder to explain than the thing that you might have sort of come away with if you had less data. It's a little paradoxical, right? It's, you know, you do a better job, but in some ways the theory is less satisfying. A, a good example of this is, um, uh, so uh, Mayank Agrawal and, and Josh Peterson and I have a paper, uh, which is the title is uh, like scientific regret minimization, which is it's it's about a, a method for working with these massive data sets. So uh, the basic idea is that um, if you get enough data, there's a point where if you're trying to critique a model that you have, uh, you should stop paying attention to the errors that you make relative to the data, and in fact, instead, sort of critique the model with respect to something like a sort of black box machine learning model. So you kind of like get this huge data set, fit a neural network to it. And then instead of focusing on your residuals to the data, you focus on your residuals to the neural network because it sort of smooths out the noise in this data set. And when you've got tons and tons of data, the biggest residuals are going to be sort of massive chance deviations rather than necessarily something that's wrong with your model. So we call it scientific regret minimization because it's saying you should focus on the data points, not where you're most wrong, but where you could have done better, right? Uh, where you, you sort of have the most reason to regret not having made the right prediction yeah. because another method tells you that you could have made the right prediction there. And so using that method, we analyzed this huge data set from the Moral Machine pro- uh, Project, which is like this trolley car uh, trolley car problems, self-driving cars, going to collide with one group of people or the other, You know, which is the, the better thing to do. Um, and the subset of it that we analyzed had something like 10 million human choices in it. It's one of these 
massive data sets where, you know, sort of they had all sorts of people come to the website and do the thing. Uh, and so that's 10 million data points. Uh, and using this method, we work through this. Um, we show that machine learning model is much better than the sort of simple psychological models we start with. But then we start pulling out extra principles that are manifest in the human data that weren't manifest in our psychological model, sort of like extra effects, right? And you know, if you were taking a standard psychology approach, you would each of these things would be like one paper on its own, right? Where you'd write one paper about this thing that seems to affect people's moral judgments. Like for example, um, a, a, a sort of simple example is um, there's a clear sort of age of responsibility effect, right? So um, if you have a child crossing the street on their own, it doesn't matter whether they're crossing the street legally or illegally. Um, if they then have an adult with them, then it does matter if they're crossing legally or illegally, right? Um, so, uh, you know, like a very simple sort of like age of responsibility matters when you're evaluating, you know, the, the impact of legality. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, th these are things that are sort of simple psychological principles. They're the kinds of things that you could pull out through careful experiments. We identify them using this procedure, but we end up with a list that's got like, you know, several dozen of these factors that actually, you know, turn out to be important. And then we ran subsequent experiments where we replicate those effects to confirm that, you know, those things actually do matter. Uh, and so the theory that you end up with is one that says, okay, people make moral decisions by weighing the values of different kinds of lives modulated by all of these additional sorts of factors about the circumstances under which you're going to pay attention to particular kinds of things. And it's not a simple story. It's kind of you know, a complex story, but one that has some sort of psychological reality to it. And so I think that's the other thing that I think about a lot is how we might expect the field to change as a consequence of having more data, right? Where it's not just going to change what kind of questions we can ask, but it's going to change what kind of answers we should expect to get. One of the things that I really love about that is that a concern that I often have about the sort of paradigm in which we approach psychology and cognitive science today is that we have the ability to optimize for internal validity within an experiment more than the ability to optimize for external validity. And oftentimes, these are kind of antagonistic forces. You can either make the experiment more rigorous, increase its you know, uh, experimental internal validity, or make the experiment more resemble real life and have external validity and that sort of thing. And it's usually, usually it's a trade-off. But because it's so much easier to critique and assess scientific and experimental rigor than it is to critique and assess you know, verisimilitude, you know, resemblance to the world as it actually is, we end up erring on the side of external validity. And so one of the things that I really see as a benefit of the approach, the, or sorry, internal validity, uh, I believe I said external. One of the things that I see as a benefit of what you're talking about is it's like, oh, well now that trade-off isn't quite as, as stringent. Like we really are able to dig into these more, um, externally valid setups because there's just so much data in there. And when we can really sort of bust into these nuances, we can, we can get at, you know, levels of, of both those kinds of validity in a way that the sort of standard 
laboratory experimental paradigm usually pits against each other. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, honestly, the way forward is a combination of these things, right? It's kind of like I said, you know, yeah. you're, you're using laboratory experiments as the precision tool, and you're using observational, large-scale observational data as, like, this, you know, source of, uh, you know, sort of other ways of evaluating your hypotheses. Um, and like I said, like, the, the thing that connects those those two approaches is basically having theories that, allow you to make predictions of both of those scales. And so that's kind of why I think, you know, computational modeling has an important role to play there is that it's going to be the bridge that you can build that allows you to say, okay, I'm missing a whole bunch of information over here in this observational case. What predictions can I make? Well, if you've got a model that you've calibrated and sort of, you know, estimated in your high precision environment, you can then treat those things as latent variables that you sort of marginalize away and you can still make predictions about the behavior that you expect to observe in that purely observational case, right? And so, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's going to require all three of these things like lab experiments, you know, sort of observational data, but also the, the models that, that we use to connect those together. We've been at it for uh, an hour here, which is what I asked of you. Uh, but I've got a couple more questions about your career. Do you want to call it here? That, that's fine. We, uh... No, I'm, I'm good. Yeah. Awesome. So kind of going back to just thinking about your approach to, to science and scholarship and everything, um, if you could pick one habit or trait or strategy, what do you think has most contributed to your productivity and success that you, you've experienced throughout your career? I mean, I think there's a way that I approach research, which is like looking for the the kind of, you know, like the chink chink in the armor of interesting problems, right? Where I think having an orientation towards interesting problems, but then also an awareness of sort of like formal methods that you can use, then you know, you kind of get lucky where you're like, okay, this deep and interesting question has this correspondence to this formal idea. And now that gives me a piece of leverage that I can use to now go and sort of make progress on that question. Hmm. Right. And so that if you look at my papers, like <laughs> almost all of my papers are of the form. Here's this interesting thing we don't understand. Here's this piece of math that we can use and it sort of maps onto this thing in this way that now we can sort of derive some consequence from that that makes this interesting prediction that we can test, right? And so like examples of that are things like iterated learning, right? This kind of like um, uh, result where, um, you know, sort of gives you this connection between a process of cultural evolution where you have a sequence of learners each learning from one another and then recognizing, oh, well, that process defines a Markov chain and in fact, if you assume that those learners are Bayesian agents, that Markov chain is a Gibbs sampler, a kind of Markov chain Monte Carlo procedure. And in fact, the stationary distribution of that Markov chain is the prior distribution of the learners. Okay, so it's kind of like interesting problem, cultural evolution, simplify it down to this chain case. Then we have this connection to a mathematical idea, Markov chain Monte Carlo. And then that gives us this prediction that we should expect to see convergence to the prior. And then we go off and, and sort of test that in context where we kind of in the lab know what priors might be that we would see people converging towards, um, but also potentially use it to explain patterns we see outside the lab in things like, you know, uh, the structure of languages or um, 
you know, we have a, a paper on like, you know, baby names or these other sort of like sort of observable objects of cultural transmission. Um, and I think, again, it's kind of like using the, the mathematics as the thing that, that allows us to then connect those together. And so, I mean, the way that I cultivated that is, I mean, historically it was basically, you know, when going to conferences was a thing that we do. <laughs> I, I live between these two worlds where one world is a kind of like machine learning and statistics world and one world is a cognitive science world. And so I go to one set of conferences and it's about, you know, getting the mathematical ideas in my head and another set of conferences and it's about getting the interesting problems in my head. And then, you know, it's kind of like the research ideas are things that then emerge from living at the, the boundary between those two worlds and sort of seeing where these unexpected correspondences exist. Yeah, that is, that is really interesting. I mean, I guess one sort of common notion that a lot of researchers have is like, well, okay, so you have this field and you, you have this field. And I guess my, you know, comparative advantage is that I've figured out how to bring them together. And you're adding a further layer of, of structure to that, which is that you've got this asymmetry between formal leverage and formal power in one and kind of, I, I don't want to say depth of insight, but like a, a certain way of going about fishing out what are the, the interesting and, and cru crucial, crucial questions. And so having, um, not just two fields in general, but having, um, that, that particular asymmetry and knowing what strength in one is going to allow us to make progress in the other. That's really fascinating. Yeah. It's, it's mysteries and solutions, right. Or something like that. If you had two fields where it's like two mysteries, yeah, then you're going to end up be. writing papers where you're like, well, this thing we don't understand is like this other thing we don't understand. Then you'd probably just be right. a philosopher. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> is there any common, I mean, you've had a lot of students come through your lab over the years and a lot of really successful students. Is there any common advice that you give to you know, your students or, for, or, or to people who want to do the kind of work that you do? Yeah, so my strategy for advising is um, I don't want to graduate people who look like me, right? Like in the sense of, you know, who are just doing the thing that I do. So um, what I want to do is to graduate students who are able to do things that nobody else is able to do. Um, you know, including me, right, that um, really have their own identity as researchers and, um, and objectives and, you know, interests and problems and, and solutions in the same kind of way. And so, um, so I take that seriously as part of, you know, like that kind of collaborative process of, you know, through graduate school, uh, developing a kind of emergent, independent, you know, research program with a student. Um, and so I think if you look at uh, my uh, publication list, it's, it's a little eclectic, right? <laughs> it's like I publish in machine learning, cultural evolution, um, you know, uh, uh, I do this work, which is on like resource rationality, right? About like, you know, what, how do we think about uh, redefining rationality in the context of decision-making and other sorts of cognitive processes. I, um, uh, I've done work on causality, natural language processing, all these different kinds of things. Uh, in some ways, you know, I, all of those things to me are unified and I can explain how they're unified if you're, if you're curious, but, 
but they also reflect the fact that when I work with students, those students sort of, you know, take forays that go out from a core of mathematical computational methods and then push those into unique directions. And so, uh, so, so the, the, the way that I kind of, you know, I, I think about that is that what we're, we're, you know, what I'm doing is genuinely being an advisor in the sense of saying, okay, you know, helping to figure out here's the thing that you're actually interested in. <laughs> I have a bunch of students who are doing job talks uh, in this, this season. And that's that in some cases, that's the moment where it all comes together, where, you know, after five years, it's like, oh, this is the thing that, I, <laughs> that I'm interested in. This is my identity as a researcher. Um, and sort of helping to guide that discovery process, but also, you know, helping to say, well, you know, here's this mathematical idea that might be useful in thinking about this question that you're interested in, or here's this question that might be, you know, something that now you can solve now that you've developed that, you know, that, that tool. Um, uh, and the, the other thing I'd say just, you know, that's not really advice. That's, that's maybe advice for advisors rather than for students. The other thing I'd say is for students who are interested in technical, you know, sort of computational modeling kinds of fields, um, you want to be taking more classes than other students might, and perhaps more than your advisor might want you to take. <laughs> so um, I think if you want to be somebody who can do things that nobody else can do, it's really important to get a deep technical training. And so like as a graduate student, I took a class, you know, a technical class of some kind, took or audited a technical class of some kind every semester. Um, and part of the goal was building up, you know, that foundation of mathematical and computational methods that then would support me going forward in my career where, you know, I can then encounter problems and I've got in my head all of the pieces that we need to put together in order to think about how to solve those problems. That's interesting in a way and in a way almost subversive that you recommend doing that through classes um, because I think a lot of people agree it's like, oh yeah, build up your technical chops, learn how to program computers and, you know, learn you know, as much rigorous statistics as possible. But they don't always put it specifically in the context of, um, you know, courses. Like, you know, I've talked to Sam Gershman the other day and I studied under him for a while. And he's like, you know what, fuck classes. Just go learn it on your own. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think, that, I think that's a, an interesting point about taking the suboptimalities of the class to like, you know, because there are suboptimalities in, in doing something in a course. It, like in theory, it is more optimal to do it on your own. You can be more efficient in certain ways, but the, that actually yeah. gives you the foundation that you need to to know things that you can't anticipate what you're right. going to um, what is going to be useful down the road, which is what you're going to yep. err on if you're doing it on your own. It's like, well, this is the shit I need to know. This is, is why not. Yep. So I'm going to omit that. And in class, it's like, well, you just you get the the whole thing. Yep. And that, that's, it's, it's exactly an explore exploit thing, right? Mm -hmm. So if your goal, I mean, it's, it's complicated because I think, you know, particularly nowadays, uh, you want to publish lots of papers, right? And so your time is precious. And, uh, and so, you know, that sort of is pressure towards exploiting, um, and just sort of focusing on learning the things that you need to know. I think in the long run though, that exploration is valuable, right? Particularly, you know, if you're, going to be advising students and postdocs in the future, then having that broader base is something that means that you're then comfortable 
know, rather than doing one relatively narrow thing, it kind of gives you a little more scope for having a slightly more expansive kind of uh, research program in the future. But yeah, I do love your overall kind of conception of the advisor being, uh, you know, how can I build a person not who looks like me, but who, you know, they can do something that no one else, including me, can do. I think that's really fantastic and, you know, to some degree uh, under undervalued in, uh, you know, the way a lot of people go about their things. So I, I really like that. And that was, that was one thing that I, I wanted to sort of touch on is that something I've always admired about your work is the breadth of topics that you cover. And it definitely is, you know, Super fascinating to see you uh, cover the range, and you, and, you, and you did mention the the unifying thing. Can you say a little bit about how you conceptualize what unifies all of your disparate, you know, sort of inquiry? Yeah, so I, I wrote a paper that came out in Ticks last year, and it's called "Understanding Human Intelligence via Human Limitations," uh, and the idea is a kind of paradoxical one, which is that. Um, if we look at the attributes of human intelligence that we sort of hold up as like, these are the special things that people do, they're things like learning from small amounts of data, um, using language and teaching and these other sorts of characteristics um, and sort of doing things like forming goals and uh, kind of like, you know, efficiently using cognitive resources in novel ways, reusing knowledge that we have from the past to solve new problems and so on. Um, so all of those characteristics of human cognition are in fact, things that you can derive from thinking about uh, human minds as solving a particular set of computational problems that are consequences of the limitations that we operate under, right? So human lives are characterized by uh, being pretty short, right? Like, you know, 80-ish uh, years, right? Uh, relying on a fixed amount of computational resources, basically, you know, about two to three pounds of neural tissue that we carry around inside our heads and having really limited capacity for communication, right? So that, you know, we have to rely on things like making honking noises with our mouths or maybe, you know, like writing characters or whatever it is, but they're sort of pretty low bandwidth methods of communication compared to say, you know, what computers are capable of. And so, you know, that set of things, there are only, there are only limitations when compared to say modern AI systems, which can learn from many lifetimes of data, you know, uh, potentially recruit more and more parallel cores to, you know, uh, solve bigger and bigger problems and uh, copy their state, right? Or share the data that they're operating with indefinitely. But I think there are things that are characteristic then of, of what makes human minds the minds that they are. When you think about, you know, what we have to do with our human minds under those limitations, the sort of computational problems that are a consequence of that, uh, it's exactly those problems that mean that we need to be able to learn from small amounts of data because we're only going to get small amounts of data, right? That we need to be able to formulate goals and reuse our resources because we have a limited capacity to plan into the future. And we have, you know, sort of limited amounts of computation that we can deploy on novel problems. Um, so, you know, sort of like paradoxically, goals are not necessarily, you know, something which we kind of like hold up as this is a, you know, a, a really important thing we need to be able to do. They're a consequence of not being able to see all the way to the end of a problem, right? If you contrast like human Go players with AlphaGo, right? 
AlphaGo is doing things because it's 25 moves in the future, it's like half a point better. And the human players are sort of thinking more about abstract structures that are, you know, sort of maybe in the nearer future. Um, and then finally, uh, you know, that limited capacity for communication means that we have to develop ways that, you know, if we want to try and overcome some of those constraints, uh, we would do it like machines by doing things like parallelizing and doing sort of distributed computation. But in order to do that, we need to develop mechanisms that allow us to share data or share state. And those mechanisms are things like teaching, language, other kinds of cultural objects, right? And so all of these characteristically human things, I think you can derive from the limitations under which human minds operate. And so uh, if you look at all the things that I work on, <laughs> there are things that are actually precisely circumscribed by those sets of limitations, right? So inductive bias, prior distributions, you know, sort of like early part of my career was sort of really about trying to understand those kinds of things. And that's about, you know, the, the characteristics of human minds that allow us to learn from small amounts of data. Resource rationality is really about how do we make efficient use of the limited resources that we have? And then language, teaching, cultural evolution are all about this sort of process of parallelization, how it is that humans work towards a kind of more like a model of distributed computation. Love all that. Final thing that I want to ask you about breadth here is which of your, you know, you've worked on so much different stuff. Which of your projects do you think is most undervalued? That is something that, you know, you're personally proud of, but haven't, hasn't received as much attention as your other work or as much as you, you might've hoped. I feel like I've been pretty lucky. <laughs> like I don't have a problem of people not reading papers that you know, I'm, I'm bitter about. So I, I don't, I don't feel like I have any license to complain about uh, anything here. You're probably um, not that wrong about that, but yeah, I guess, is there anything that you expected maybe to be more of a splash that was more of a murmur? Um, I mean, I, I have a student now, Michael Chang, who is doing, I think, completely amazing work that is a little to the periphery of mainstream machine learning. I think for that reason might not have been appreciated as much as it, it could be, but, but Michael's been doing stuff, which is really about like, um, taking a lot of really big picture sort of classical AI kinds of questions and then using some of the sort of modern machine learning tools to, to engage with them. So for example, um, one set of results that I think are really cool look at, um, uh, you know, a question that relates to the sort of distributed computation question, under what circumstances can you take a society of agents and have them work together to solve a reinforcement learning problem, right? So, um, so in that paper, we exhibit conditions that are guaranteed to hold for now. If you have a sort of society of agents where those agents are sort of making bids. So think about something like a, a Markov decision process, right? So you've got states, there are actions you can take in those states, there are rewards that are associated with those actions. Um, so the, the setup is each agent can kind of bid for a state. They sort of bid a you know amount of reward, essentially. Uh, and then they if they if they win win that bidding process, then they can take the action uh, that they want to take and then you know, um, 
and then that transitions to a new state and then somebody else bids to buy the state from them right um and so uh, so we can e exhibit the conditions under which just that bidding process with these independent agents who are just sort of making their own decisions solves that markup decision process. Um, it's really cool. It's like, a, it's kind of like Marvin Minsky's society of mind, except we did the math, <laughs> right? And said, yeah. look, here's a way you can have a distributed society actually solve complex, challenging reinforcement learning problems. And then if that wasn't cool enough in a follow-up paper, uh, he shows that, uh, this is one of a small class of methods that are guaranteed to transfer more effectively, right? So now if you go in and um, interfere with the system in a way that's, uh, you know, like sort of taking some part of that MDP and modifying that part of the MDP, but leaving the rest intact, because you have this distributed system, uh, it's now something which is robust to those kinds of interventions. Whereas if you had a more traditional reinforcement learning method that's making kind of global updates to your policy, it gets very disrupted by those kinds of changes. And so again, like prove the conditions uh, which have to hold on reinforcement learning algorithms to display that kind of modularity and then show that this kind of like distributed society approach is actually robust to that. And so I think that's a kind of really deep, really cool result that again, it's a little off the mainstream of kind of like how people are thinking about you know, reinforcement learning nowadays, but it's it's something that gives you insight into things as broad as like, well, how do human societies solve challenging, you know, resource allocation problems and sort of long range sort of planning problems? Um, and, you know, what are the circumstances under which you, you expect human societies to be robust to these kinds of interventions? I actually find that really compelling and I, and I look forward to diving into it. You know, I'll check out those those papers, but it actually it kind of has a vague resemblance to this you know personal crackpot theory that I have, which is just to describe it briefly. If you if you look at human intelligence, the development of human intelligence, there are three different scales on which it occurs. One is phylogenetic, so over you know evolutionary time as a, as a species. One is over, you know, cultural historical time. So what we know now that the Romans didn't or that, you know, people 10,000 years before them, you know, didn't know. And there's also, you know, development of the individual. So mm -hmm. from childhood yep. to... And machine learning and AI, I think, are really sympathetic to the first and the third one. They, they want to know, yep. okay, how do we build something that is, in the evolutionary sense, sophisticated... And people, you know, especially people like Josh and Emma, are like, oh, well, I mean, gosh, if we can get people to do what babies do, then fuck. I mean, we're, we're there. But um, there's a certain dearth of the cultural, you know, sort of knowledge, the historical knowledge, which is collections of, of individual intelligences working together. And that's one mm -hmm. of the areas that I've found interesting. You're working a lot on it. Um, Peaks Craft is, is, is working on it as well. And, you know, kind of the stuff that you're describing now, but like, how do you get intelligent agents to work together in a way that resembles something like culture or society? Or I don't even know yeah. what it would, it, would, it would resemble. But yep. there has to be something there in that kind of middle development of intelligence. And we really don't have any idea what that is right now. There's no, there's no game in town on um, you know, that from a machine learning AI perspective, which is why people like Peaks and um, uh, uh, you know, the, the papers you're talking about are kind of fringy. That it's like, well, we don't really know how to 
slot this into the way we usually talk about things. Yeah, I forecast that it'll be super important for the next kind of, I don't know, it even goes so far as to say revolutions in, in what we can do with AI. Yeah, I mean, a good way to think about that, right, is that these things that are about human systems are going to become relevant when our AI systems are running into the same kinds of limitations that shape human intelligence, right? So if there's a point where, you know, you're limited in the amount of compute that you can put into an agent, right, then you need to think about how do those agents work together to solve problems. And that's the kind of situation that we're talking about for people. Um, this is, it's a big focus of stuff that we're doing in my lab right now is really thinking about kind of like, you know, distributed computation, right, as a lens for uh, thinking about you know, cultures and societies and organizations. Um, and we have built some cool tools that we can use for doing, basically the, the tools that we built for doing these big cultural evolution experiments, we can apply in these settings. And we have some papers that are gonna be coming out soon, hopefully where we're, we're starting to engage with some of those kinds of questions. But um, it's very much a, a topic that's on my mind. I'm so glad to hear that. Uh, la final question, and then I'll let you go. What are three books that have most impacted you? So, um, well, so I think I'll, I'll focus on things that are, I guess, things that have affected my kind of intellectual trajectory here, um, which we've been <laughs> talking about for the, the last uh, you know, hour or so. So, um, so one, I mentioned there was a book that I read in uh, sort of the end of my second year at university in a philosophy class that then I was like, oh my gosh, you can you know, use math to understand human cognition. So that book was Matter and Consciousness by Paul Churchland, right? And so uh, the last chapter of that book is all about neural networks. He was kind of like at UCSD when all of this stuff was happening and he sort of imported some of this to philosophy, but that was where I got exposed to those ideas. And then I spent like a summer drawing crazy neural network diagrams and doing lots of linear algebra and calculus. And, you know, that was kind of like a moment when uh, sort of, you know, things kind of intellectually caught fire for me. Um, another book is uh, John Anderson's book, The Adaptive Character of Thought, which is this weird kind of one-off in John's like, you know, uh, bibliography where he, like the story of it is, he was on sabbatical in Adelaide. So has like this Australian connection. He was incredibly bored because he was on sabbatical in Adelaide. <laughs> um, this is like inter-Australian inter city rivalry, right? Um, uh, he read Roger Shepard's uh, Universal Law of Generalization paper. He was like, huh, I wonder what else this kind of approach can be applied to. And then he wrote this book like in this period that like, you know, it's kind of like this intense capsule of a really smart person thinking about a really big idea just for you know extended period where he takes it, this approach and then he sort of like says, okay, let's try and systematize this a bit. That's where we get rational analysis from and then applies it to like categorization, causality, memory, and problem solving. And I feel like, you know, that book really, you know, like, you, you could, and I partly have spent an entire career just taking the kind of problems that are posed in that book and expanding them. And, you know, like I sort of, it's a, it's something where I go back to, I'm like, okay, well, we're done with the causality part. Let's go. And now we'll, we'll look at the problem solving part. That's, we're actually now, you know, like <laughs> we just, we just put out our uh, preprint on 
planning from this kind of resource rational perspective that I think engages with like some of the problems that were raised in that book. And it's, I think, a sort of touchstone for, again, like sort of thinking about some some big picture questions. Um, and the third one, uh, it's a little unusual. It's a book called Mind and World by Roger Shepard, um, which might be unfamiliar because it was never published. So uh, when I was a graduate student at Stanford, um, Roger was still there. Um, and I got to hang out with him a little bit. And at one point he was just sort of getting ready to move on and uh, was cleaning out his like storage cabinets. <laughs> He's like, oh, here's a bunch of old stuff. If you want anything, you know, you can take it. So I got some cool stuff from that. I got um, uh, a picture that he drew of UFOs because he was doing some, he was involved in like a SETI thing for you know, universal laws, you know, sort of thinking about what cognition on other you know, planets might look like, and and he got interested in UFOs. So he had has some did some sort of perceptual experiments with UFOs, and I got some of the stimuli from that. Um, but I also got the uh, the outline that he wrote for a book uh, called Mind and World, and sort of has like you know list of the chapters that are in the book and so on based on some lectures that he gave. Uh, but you know we don't have that book. It didn't never never really happened, um, and. Uh, I think the world would be a better place with more Roger Shepard in it. So it's actually, I have it, I have the outline on the wall of my office as a kind of academic memento mori, right? Kind of like thinking about, um, you know, we have limited opportunities to do the things that we want to do. And so it's worth thinking about what are the things that we want to be focused on. That's so cool. Maybe that's the next, you know, maybe that's something for you and Brian Christian to tackle, you know, maybe... <laughs> We, we have a, a series coming out actually on distributed yeah. computation. Um, um, so we have like a... a is that the a, Audible series yeah. that's coming out? Yeah. That's this yeah. month, right? Yeah, that's right. When, so, uh, when is that released? I don't... I is that don't Algorithms exactly. to Work by? Is that is that the... It was uh, Algorithms at Work. I think algorithms at title. Work. Okay. Yeah, but it's it's what it's really about is about um, this this sort of perspective of thinking about organizations from the from the, the view of distributed computation. Yeah. I've already reserved an audible credit to <laughs> dedicate towards that. So I'm looking forward to, to when that comes out, um, which it, by the time this conversation airs, it almost certainly will have. So um, cool. Well, Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Oh, yeah, thank you. It's been fun. That was my conversation with Tom Griffiths. Very generous of him to, you know, talk to me for an hour and a half about a uh, wide range of subjects and everything. And yeah, it was, it was, it was fun to hear from him. And, uh, I'm just, you know, glad after I, I've, you know, I've wanted to have him on the show for a long time. And so it was great to have him. Um, I think the interview speaks for itself and yeah, no, it's, it's been great. I guess part of, yeah, part of what I was thinking about at the beginning of this year, beginning of 2022 was focusing in on cognitive scientists is sort of the like main staple of the show. You know, um, my personal email, if you ever email me, this is what I'll respond to with is cek.cogsci. And I've been using that, uh, you know, ever since I was an undergraduate cognitive science major at UCLA. And I've always kind of felt that cognitive science was the kind of core description of, of how I identify, even if like it's not necessarily, you know, I, I, I'm always pretty open about the fact that I'm not really that much of a scientist per se. And 
my research and especially to my PhD, I think would be kind of, you know, cog- it's more social psychology, strictly speaking, than cognitive science. But there's always been something about that label that I identify with. It's like that is my identity in terms of my worldview that scientific research has given me. I kind of, that is my baseline that I'm like working from. And a lot of it was developed by people like Tom Griffith, Sam Gershman, Josh Tenenbaum, all, all that sort of thing. And yeah, I guess I've just been grappling recently with like, what does that, is that really the label? Like, do I really want to continue with that as a part of my identity in a way, you know? Um, am, is my, re, is my true email still CEK.cogsci, you know? And uh, yeah, so I don't, I don't know what to make of that. It's something that's sort of evolving for me at the moment. And uh, we'll see, we'll, we'll see how it goes sort of like after my PhD and everything like that. But yeah, I'm, I'm trying to over, you know, between now and I guess through summer as the podcast changes, which I've mentioned in the, the show a couple times now. And as my situation changes, I graduate from my PhD and everything. I'm just thinking like, okay, well, is that really the sort of like defining aspect of, of, of what I want to do and, and everything like that? So yeah, I don't know. I don't have a pointed answer to that or an insight or anything like that. It's just, that is something that is on my mind to consider and, and is something that's evolving for me at the moment. So uh, thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you to my producer and editor, Emily Chen. And I'll be back next week with another episode of Cognitive Evolution. Thank you.